Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Everything that you need in your life, do you really believe that it comes from God? That if you just take all of what God has for you, the scriptures that God has for you, that your life will be rich and full, that you'll find yourself entering into heaven and look back upon your life and be happy with what you find. I'm glad I'm getting a lot of nods, but I also think there's a lot of Christians that don't really believe that. God's word and the wisdom we find in the scriptures are everything we need. Once we realize that the treasures in this world are hidden in the Bible, then we have sufficiency and provision that can never be taken away from us. The things of this world will eventually perish, but the riches of God are eternal. Here's the continuation of our teaching out of 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11 with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. God had taken everything from me when I backslid. And I was driving down the road and a song came on, and I've shared this before. It's a song by Love Song called Little Pilgrim. Little Pilgrim walking down the road of life. Can't you see that there are many others that are just like you? And you take a little turn to the left and you see what that road has to offer you. And you gotta make it back to the main road anyhow. And you've got all that lost time to make up for. God used that song to speak to me that I'd taken a turn to the left and I needed to come back. I went home and I prayed, all right, Lord, I'm done. I'm no longer going to live for me. I'm now going to live for you. I had never prayed that prayer. I had prayed, Lord, come into my life. I had prayed, Lord, I receive you. I had prayed, Lord, save me. But I had never prayed, okay, God, I give up. I surrender. I will now do whatever you want me to do. No longer what I want, I said, but whatever you want. I got up and went to church the next Sunday. It was an assembly of God's church just down the road from where I was. I'd gone there a few years before. And I sat down during the music and people around me had their hands raised and nothing happened inside of me. The guy got up and spoke. I opened up my Bible and I followed along and even had a highlighter in my hand to highlight some things and nothing, nothing spoke to me. I left church that day and I thought this, I've gone too far. I've walked away from God and God doesn't want me back. I've come back now and I, and I can't come back. About a week and a half later, a friend of mine called me up. He said, I got saved. He was a cruise buddy of mine. We would cruise Eastdale. If any of you guys are from Albuquerque, you know what that means. And uh, he had no idea that I knew exactly what he meant when he said I got saved. I'd witnessed to him once, but I'd been drunk twice in my life. It was the second time I'd been drunk that I'd witnessed to him. And I don't know about you, but being drunk and witnessing mm, doesn't really work. And he said, you got to go to church with me on Friday night. And I went to church and it was this bizarre little charismatic, uber charismatic church, not just charismatic church, uber charismatic. You had to step over people to get in the building. People were praying in tongues when you walked into the building. The worship was playing and I sat down in one of the pews that were there. And as soon as I sat down, the spirit of God just touched me. And I began to cry. I, uh, when I cry, I'm, I'm not a cool crier. That's why I don't cry when I preach. Because I make this face that is the most hideous, scrunched up face that you can possibly imagine. I started to bawl. I'm sure people thought, you know, you've heard of laughing in the spirit. Here's crying in the spirit. 
And God brought me back that night. And I, I wondered later on, what was that about? Why did God, why didn't he make me wait a week and a half? Why, when I got up that morning and went to the church, why didn't God touch my heart then? And I think what God was doing was giving me every last drop of bitterness of the world. It's as if he said, you, you went out and you drank a cup of the world to see what it was like. And I want you to drink it all to know that there's nothing out there for you. But everything that pertains to life and godliness has been given to us by him. And everything that we need comes from the word of God. I don't need any human wisdom and I don't need any worldly philosophies. All I need to know is what God has in mind for me. And so he says his divine power, and note that divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. How do we gain what we need through life and godliness? By the knowledge of him. How do we gain the knowledge of him? By learning the scriptures, by studying them and memorizing them, by reading them, by being in studies like we are tonight. He goes on to say, for by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. You know, note the second time that that's, he uses the word precious here. I just somehow don't picture Peter using the word precious. You know, he's just a big fisherman, right? It's like Ken Graves. Ken Graves, you know who he is, right? He's a Calvary Chapel pastor and, and he does a lot of men's conferences. Ken Graves is talking about being a man. He's like, he's big, by the way. Make him be a man. You're going to be a wimp. Let's serve Jesus. Love him. I still see Ken going, just precious salvation, precious, just precious, precious salvation. <laughs> but Peter really knew the preciousness of our salvation. It's a word that means just as much as it does in the English, the precious promises. Do you know that there are close to 8,000 promises in the Bible? I used to have a book called the Jesus Pocket Promise Book. I love to read it. Just pick it up and just start flipping through the pages and reading the promises. Now, not all 8,000 of the promises in the Bible obtain to all of us, but they, they do to somebody. If it's not us, they do to somebody. God's given 8,000 promises. Years ago, when I was reading through the Bible, just my daily Bible reading, I would write a P by any promise that I found in the Bible. Once you do that, you find that there are a lot of places in the Bible that there are promises of God that are given. Verse says in verse four again, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. This world is going to end up in corruption. Why is this world going to end up in corruption? Through lusts. The Bible says that the days are shortened because there would be no flesh that would remain upon the earth. It's not a popular thing today to talk about the end of the world. It's not a popular thing for churches to talk about it. The Bible says in the last days, scoffers will arise. And I never expected the scoffers to arise within the church, but they have arisen within the church. If God were as merciful towards man as he wants to be, before we're done with the book of 1 Peter, we're gonna learn the reason that Jesus hasn't come back yet. He hasn't come back yet because he wants to see more people saved. And he had pushed it so far out so that more people could come to Christ but men would destroy himself because of the lust, the corruption came into the world. And we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
The Bible says that if you sow to the spirit, from the spirit you reap life. And if you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you reap corruption. But the corruption that he speaks of here is the corruption that brings destruction. And it's in the world through lusts. It's because men will eventually destroy the world. Evangelical Christians are not necessarily known as green people. Now, some of you guys are. I don't think it's a bad thing. When, I, when we say green, we mean that you care about the planet, right? You care about the planet. You care about the world that God has given us, the, the world that we're living in, and that man wouldn't destroy it. And I think, hey, you know, who knows how long the Lord's going to tarry? Who knows how long until the end? We certainly want to give our children a, a better world, right? But the world that we are in is perishing, and it is passing away. And it's easy for us, and it's easy for especially conservatives to say, well, you know what? We can't destroy the world. The world can't be destroyed by us. Yeah, it can be. And it's going to be. Man will one day destroy this place and destroy human life on this place. And so he says that we would escape by his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Then he says in verse 5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence. Be diligent for these things. And he's going to give a list. Someone called it a train of virtues. On Sunday morning, we talked about three great virtues or what I call three super virtues, faith, hope, and love. Well, he now gives us a list of seven virtues. And he says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence. Be diligent in bringing these virtues about in your life. Add to your faith virtue. Your faith is when you committed your life to Christ. Faith is when you said, I trust you, I believe in you, and I surrender myself to you. And so you need to add to your faith virtue. Virtue, knowledge. Virtue is, virtue is the idea of goodness. It's the idea of being a good person. You add to your faith virtue. That you say, I want to I wanna be good to the people that are around me. Add to your faith virtue. And to your virtue, it says knowledge. Right? For this very reason, given all diligence to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, that we can learn as much about God as we can. And that's why we're here, right? We're gathering here because we want to know God's word, because we want to learn as much about him as we can. To your knowledge, self-control. We, we live in a world that doesn't discuss self-control a lot, but there needs to be. And self-control, perseverance, our old friend, patience. We say, I want patience and I want it right now. Wish God would hurry up and give me patience. And to perseverance, godliness. Godliness is to be like God. You have self-control and here godliness. Godliness is that you and I would be as much like Christ as we can. We saw in 1 Peter that the word Christian was used there. The word Christian means to be a little Christ. Godliness is to be like God. To godliness, brotherly kindness. That's the word Philadelphia or, or, or phileo, which we get Philadelphia from, that we would walk in love towards one another. And to brotherly kindness, love, and that's the word agape. Now it gives this list and then it says, for if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that says, I can have all things. 
I can do all things and I can know all things. But if I don't have love, then it doesn't profit me at all. If I don't have love and brotherly kindness and virtue and godliness and perseverance, then my faith means nothing. I can have all of that wisdom, all of that knowledge, all of that understanding. But if this isn't a part of who we are, then it doesn't mean anything to us at all. And again, as we said in the beginning of our study, the last thing that we want is for our faith to be barren, for our faith not to produce or reproduce, and then to be fruitful. That is, that people around us would be able to be blessed by it. Look at it again in verse 8. For if these things are in you, are yours and abound, you will neither be barren. To be barren is to, to not reproduce. If these things are in you, you will not be barren. People around you who do not know Jesus will see Jesus and come to Christ if these things are in you. Shouldn't surprise us, Jesus said, and they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another, nor unfruitful. Fruit is, well, when a tree has fruit on it, you go and you take your fruit and eat it. An orange or a lemon or an apple. Our lives produce fruit that bless the people around us. We don't want our lives to be barren and we don't want our lives to be unfruitful. And then it says, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we have that knowledge and we know him and we walk with him, then we want our lives not to be barren and unfruitful. In verse nine, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. What a way to put it. He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. He says it twice. Isn't that interesting? Short-sighted even to blindness. First of all, short-sighted. That, that somehow I think that having brotherly love and godliness and virtue and knowledge, and perseverance, and love, that somehow those things aren't that important for me. That I'm short-sighted. That I say, mm, I don't think I really need them. I don't think I really need them in my life. And that short-sighted even leads to blindness where we can't see it at all. And I want to remind you that he's not talking here in this passage to non-believers. He's talking in the very beginning to those that have obtained salvation by Jesus Christ, by the, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's possible for us as Christians to be short-sighted and to say, I don't need these things in my life. We're, we, just, we just are looking at what's right in front of us. We're looking at today. We're looking at tonight. We're looking at tomorrow. And we're not looking way off into the future. We're not saying, Lord, whatever sacrifices you need from me, I want to give you. And that short-sightedness can even lead to blindness. What a picture that a Christian could be, be blind, not understanding these things at all. Some are short-sighted and some have even gotten to the place of blindness where they just don't, don't see it. They just don't need it. He's not saying that we will perish if we don't have these virtues in our lives. He's saying that it, it stops barrenness and it stops unfruitfulness. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. And again, we find the positive and negative. We find the positive not being barren and unfruitful. And we find the negative that we are short-sighted and even blindness. And then we've forgotten that he has cleansed us from our sins. We've forgotten that we were cleansed that we want to live our lives in such a way that people see Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
Therefore, brethren, he says in verse 10, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. And that means exactly what it says. Therefore, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. And then some pastor will spend a half an hour telling you why that doesn't say what it says. Why is that so much trouble for people? Why do they struggle with that so much? Make your call and election sure. All it's saying is make sure you're really saved. Make sure you are not a tear. Make sure you are wheat and not a tear. Make sure that you are not a pretend Christian, but that you are a genuine one. It has nothing to do with theology. It has nothing to do with Reformed theology. It has to do with encouraging people to make sure that your election and calling is sure. To make sure that you really and genuinely have committed your life to Christ. And it's always stumped me from the very first letter that I got about the issue of why people would be upset. I was teaching from, I think it's 2 Corinthians, there late in the book, where it says to, to make sure that you're in the faith. And I made the point there, make sure you're in the faith, make sure you really know Christ. And somebody wrote me a letter and was really upset that I had robbed people of their security. I don't want to rob you of your security. I don't want, I don't want those of you who are saved to think you're not saved. That's the last thing I want to do. But for those of you who aren't saved, who think you are, I don't want you to be secure. I want to shake up your security. If you're not saved, I want to make sure that you've evaluated your life and it's never a bad thing for us. How could it ever be a bad thing to say, I want to make my calling and election sure. I want to make sure I'm not playing games. I want to make sure I'm not pretending. I want to make sure I haven't become religious. I want to make sure I haven't been religious from the beginning. I want to make sure I'm in a relationship with Jesus and that I really do love him and really want to be called by him. Therefore, be even more diligent, he says, to make your calling and election sure. And I like to say, if you want to write a letter about that, don't write it to me, write it to Peter. I don't know where you're going to mail it, but Peter's the one that said it. And why spend so much time saying, well, this is what Peter said, but it's not what he means. It doesn't mean anything for your salvation. For those of you who are genuinely saved, have really been touched by God, have been called to him, have had your sins forgiven and have been born again, telling someone to make your calling election sure doesn't change your salvation. Even for you to evaluate yourself and say, am I really saved? Doesn't say anything about your salvation. Why would we be so worried about that? So worried about keeping people from evaluating themselves. I say, let's evaluate ourselves and evaluate ourselves again and evaluate ourselves again and evaluate ourselves again. Eternity is what hangs in the balance. Salvation, making our way into heaven. We want to make sure that we go there. No wonder Peter says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, he's not saying that your calling and election is sure because these seven virtues are in your life. He's saying, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. And if you do these things, you will never stumble. Well, that's pretty good. I don't know about you. I don't like falling down. I don't like when uh, Christopher was little, he, uh, you know, like any, any kid, he would fall down periodically. I had a pair of cowboy boots that I would wear back in those days. And I walked into 
Tony Jandra, who's now the pastor up on Calvary Chapel of White Mountains, he used to have a bike shop that was down on golf links. And I walked in the back door of the bike shop and there was some oil on the floor. And I hit the heel of my boot on the oil and I fell down and he had like a doorstop on the back of his door that slid into the ground. And I fell down on that doorstop, just tore my back up, just ripped a gouge in my back. I, I got home and I was in the bathroom and I was just, you know, dealing with it, right? I'm cleaning it up and trying to deal with it. My son comes in and goes, what, what happened? And I said, I fell down. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I guess you do fall down. I don't want to fall down spiritually. I don't want to stumble. He's not saying that you would fall and perish, but just that you would stumble. I want us to be agile spiritually. I want us to be able to do what God's called us to do, going where God wants us to go and being involved in what God wants us to do. So if we do these things, then we will never stumble. Then verse 11, this is our last verse. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now I have a question for you. Why will an entrance abundantly be made for you if these things are part of your life? If we go back to the list that's here, right back to where it says, verse five, but also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Why is that gonna give us a grand entrance into heaven? Because you and I are gonna be the most effective salt and light that this world can see. Jesus said, take the mammon of this world and make for yourself friends who will greet you on your entrance into heaven. When we are living our lives with love and brotherly kindness and patience and godliness and virtue, people around us see something different inside of us and they're drawn to Jesus. And there will be a grand entrance into heaven because people around us know Christ. Now, I don't want a grand entrance into heaven just to have a grand entrance. I don't want the announcement angel, maybe it's Gabriel, be like the guy for the bulls, right? Do you remember that? And now you're Chicago Bulls. The lights flying around. I don't need somebody to say, and now Robert Furrow. I don't need that going on when I get into heaven. That's not the kind of grand entrance that I want. I want a grand entrance like, like Daniel says, and those who lead many to the Lord will shine like the stars forever and ever. I just want to see people whose lives have been touched because of the way that I've lived. I just want people around me to see Christ in me, the hope of glory, not because of me and not because those virtues are mine, but because God has given me the power to be able to, to live a life in that way that people would see me and be drawn to him. That is what makes a grand entrance into heaven. And I want that entrance for every single one of you. I want you to go into heaven and have people greeting you saying, I am here because of you. You played a part in my eternity. And when, when we consider life in those terms, is there anything anything here that is any greater than that, than saving souls for eternity. We are involved in a truly great cause. And may you have a grand entrance into heaven. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.